Good morning. I'm Trevor and I'm going to read this morning's Bible reading, which you can follow on, on your own devices, or there are some Bibles up the back if you like those. Other than that, it'll be on the screen. This morning's reading is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Well, good morning, folks. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Bracken. Great to be with you today. And sorry, we had the wrong reading up there. That's probably my bad. Um, to start off, let's not listen to me. Listen to this. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year Who's in the Christmas spirit now, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year, at least according to Andy Williams, the old singer there. Uh, but I wonder what you'd put in, put in there if, if you had the choice. Christmas is the most what time of the year? Uh, the most busy, the most family-oriented, the most stressful perhaps. Surely it's the most diet-busting time of the year. And for some even, it's the most lonely time of the year. I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, there's an American guy and an Australian guy talking. They're both believers. But the American guy, he said that in America, Christmas, is, it's more about gift shopping and presents. But since he's moved to Australia, he said, actually, in Australia, Christmas is more about parties and celebrations and seeing people. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because in, in America, Christmas is in the winter. And, and you know, who wants to be out there in all the cold? But in Australia, Christmas is in the summer. It's nice and warm. So we get out. We have our office parties, family get-togethers, school concerts, all sorts of end-of-year events. Um, and this series we're about to start for the next few weeks, I want it to be a bit of an antidote to all of that. Not because there's anything wrong with buying gifts or office parties, 
But amidst all of that going on, it's so easy for us to forget, isn't it? Why we as believers think Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, a baby in a manger. But Christmas must always force us to go beyond the baby in the manger. For Jesus didn't come to be a cute little postcard. He came to change the course of human history. In fact, he came to change the course of eternity. And that's what this series is about. Over the next few Sundays, we're going to be in, in Luke. And Luke's going to show us why Jesus came. Luke's going to say he came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring peace on earth. And today we're going to see he came to defeat the devil. Yeah, we've read a passage in Luke chapter 4 there, uh, and I'm going to refer to that, but we're going to actually jump through a whole lot of the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles there, it'll be handy to keep open. We'll flick around a little bit. But to start off then, we're going to ask, who is the devil? I mean, in pop culture, there's lots of references to the devil, right? There's the, firstly, there's the idea that that little cartoon version of the devil is a red guy with the pitchfork and the horns. Um, there's another idea of the devil in pop culture where, where he's really just like an internal voice. You know, you've got your angel on one shoulder and, and the devil's on the other shoulder. It's like this internal battle between you wanting to do good or, or not. And, and, and the devil's really that voice that stops you being a do-gooder all the time, lets you have a little bit of fun every now and again. There's also um, the scary movie versions of the devil where he's kind of like an, an ugly kind of half goat, half man looking thing. Um, but what about the Bible? What does the Bible got to say? Actually, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us much about where the devil or Satan, where he comes from. Uh, people have thought that he's a, like a fallen angel, but there's no Bible passage that's, that directly says this. Instead, the Bible tells us a lot about the devil's character, about what he's like as a being. The devil is a spiritual being, and the Bible says he is evil. Not just uh, someone who's out for a bit of fun, but at his core, the devil is evil. And you see this in the way that the devil opposes God. As the devil is opposed to God and God's good plans. I mean, this is something you see time and time again in the Bible. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had just told his disciples he's going to die. But Peter turns and says to Jesus, no, you can't do that. That's not going to happen to you. And so Jesus responds to him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Because Jesus realizes that opposition to God and God's plans, that's from the devil. Or in Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells a parable. It's about people hearing God's word. But Jesus says, for some, the devil comes and takes it from them. See, He's opposed to what God wants. He's opposed to God. But perhaps the clearest picture we get of this is in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, In the first two chapters in Genesis, we see lots of good stuff. God makes a good world. In fact, he calls it very good. He makes people. He puts them in a beautiful garden. uh, And he he gives them a good command. He says, you know, all these trees here, you can eat from them. But there's that one tree there. Don't eat from that. Because if you do, you'll die. You'll see it's a good command, isn't it? Everything here, good, 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 good. But then in chapter 3, the devil creeps in, looking like a snake. And we'll have a look at what happens. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3 here. Genesis Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He, talking about the devil there, he said to the woman, 
Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, from the, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you notice how the devil operates here? He's in opposition to God, isn't he? So he questions God's word. Did God really say? Then he denies God's word. You will not certainly die. And then the devil slanders God. He denies that God is good. You know, God's trying to keep something from you here. He just wants you to miss out. He knows that if you do this, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that for you. You see what the devil's like? He, he, he works against God. He's against God and his good plans. He even slanders God, which is actually quite appropriate because that's what his name means. Literally, the devil means the one who slanders. And that's what we see here. Right? He's slandering God. The devil is opposed to God. And we still see that same pattern today. That same pattern in Genesis chapter 3, we still see it here in our world. The devil still tempts us the same way. He gets us to question God. Did God really say that? Did he really mean it in that way? The devil lies to us about God's word. Oh, look, it's not, it's not really that big of a deal if you just... It doesn't really matter all that much. Come on. And he slanders God to us. But if God doesn't want this for you, surely he's not very good, is he? Look, following God means you have to miss out on so much. Oh, look, you're just going to ruin your life if you keep following him. I wonder, friends, if you've ever felt those temptations in your life. But the thing we're seeing here is the character of the devil. He's evil. He's a slanderer who is opposed to God. And this sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? But you could think, look, God and the devil, they have a bit of a beef, a bit of an argument going on up there. Let's just step back and let them figure it out and we'll just get on with our own lives, right? You could think that. Uh, the problem is that there's more to the story than just that. Because the devil isn't just opposed to God. The devil is opposed to us. The devil doesn't want good for us. Think about Genesis chapter 3 again for a moment. The devil knows that he's lying. He knows what's going to happen if Adam and Eve eat the fruit. It's going to bring death. It's going to bring pain, sadness, suffering, toil. But, but that doesn't stop him. He does it anyway because he's not concerned about our good at all. Actually, we see this in another way too. We know the devil's not for our good, our good because he accuses us before God. The devil accuses us. So have a look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And the way it describes the devil there, it says that he's the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. See, the devil's not a nice guy who's been just a bit misunderstood here. No, he's an accuser. He's like a, um, like a slick-looking lawyer 
the well-dressed kind of guy, hair slicked down to one side. And he stands before God and he just points to us and he says, God, look, he's guilty. God, look, she's guilty. Look at what they're doing here, God. But you know what the real problem is here, friends? It's not just that the devil accuses us. The devil's power lies in that he accuses us and he's right. This is what the Bible talks about as sin. Now, sin doesn't mean I'm a genocidal maniac like Adolf Hitler. But it's talking about me and it says there's something that's morally gone wrong within me. Uh, None of us would claim to be perfect, right? But the Bible's big point about us is actually our big problem in is, is in, our big problem is in how we treat God. Think back to the Genesis three passage again. Those first humans did what the devil said. That is, they disobeyed God. They rejected God as their God, and instead they decided to live their lives their own way. I don't want to have to do what you want. God. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to choose what's right and wrong for me. Thank you very much. And that, friends, really is at the heart of sin. And the Bible goes on to say, this is not just an Adam and Eve problem. But this is something that every human has done ever since. You see, the devil really has two tricks up his sleeve. And he plays them every time. Trick number one, he pulls out, it's temptation. The devil tempts us to turn away from God. He says, God really wants you to do that. Wouldn't it be better if you just did this instead? Oh, you'd certainly have a bit more fun. Now, come on, live a little. And we fall for this over and over, don't we? And when we do, the devil, he doesn't just kind of throw an arm over our shoulder and say, oh, how good was that, man? See, you and me, mates for life. No, no. As soon as he sees what we've done, he, he turns around to God and he starts accusing us. That is, he, it's trick number two. It's accusation. Oh, God, didn't you see what he did there now? You did. I know you see everything, God. You saw what he did. He broke your law. He did what you said not to do. You know what's got to have to happen now, God? You've got to punish him. You can't just let this lie. You're a just God. You can't let this lie. You've got to, he must be punished. He's guilty. Temptation. And then accusation. The devil is like he's the worst of all those, the the nasty lawyer types you've seen in the movies. He's going to win and he knows it because he's right. I have done wrong. I do deserve punishment. You see see what Satan's power is there? His, His accusation is that we've done wrong. And our problem is that he's right. We have. This is a dangerous place to be in. The devil is against us. The devil is opposed to us. But this isn't a talk about how the devil came into the world. This is a talk about what Jesus did when he came into the world. So let's turn now to consider Jesus. Uh, Trevor read a part of the Bible for us before, uh, Luke chapter 4. And did you notice something different about Jesus there? See, Luke chapter 4 It's like a rerun of of Genesis chapter 3 from earlier. Think about it. Jesus goes, though, he doesn't go into a garden, but he goes into a a desert place. And he isn't given an abundance of food to eat from all the trees in the garden. No, no, Jesus has, has nothing. 
it kind of seems like Jesus is being set up for failure here. But when the devil tempts Jesus, he doesn't listen. Jesus keeps honoring God. It's, here's a rerun of, of Genesis 3. In many ways, it's a rerun of all of human history. The devil plays trick card number one, temptation. But Jesus does something that we humans just can't do. The devil tempts him and Jesus says, no. And this happens not just once, but three times over and over. And Jesus keeps saying, no, no, no. And right at the end, verse 13 in Luke 4, the devil kept looking for an opportune time to tempt Jesus. But through his life, Jesus kept saying no to the devil. See, Jesus is a very different person. Look at what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, unlike us, he did not sin. You might think, well, great for Jesus, hey? I guess the devil can't accuse him. But it doesn't do anything for the rest of us, does it? I mean, we did sin when we were tempted, and so we're guilty. What, are we just still sitting around here waiting for punishment then? Are we just like on the world's longest death row? But there's more to the story yet. Because there's more to Jesus. See, not only does Jesus resist the devil's temptations for himself, but Jesus also defeats the devil for us. Jesus robs the devil of the accusation he can throw against us. How does he do this? Maybe you think they have a great battle and they fight and they fight and eventually Jesus wins by sticking a stake through the devil's heart. But no, no, no. Actually, Jesus wins when he dies. This kind of sounds weird, right? When you die, that's when you lose. But with Jesus, his death is his victory. Because by his death, Jesus frees us from the three P's of sin. The three P's of sin. What are they? Well, let me explain. So, I sin, and that means I must pay a penalty for my sin. In fact, I sin, and now I'm under... The power of sin, I just keep, seem to keep doing it all the time. And, and, and so sin now, thirdly, is a constant presence in my life. The, the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. But Jesus frees me from all of this. Let me explain. Firstly, Jesus frees me from the penalty of sin. Now, I think we all get the idea, right, that if you do the wrong thing, there are consequences, so, uh, for example, last year I got a letter in the mail and it said that I was in the wrong, that I was guilty. It was an accusation leveled against me. And when I did the research, I found out the accusation was true. I'd parked my car in a place where I wasn't allowed to park it. And now, according to the letter, I was in trouble. There was a penalty for my wrongdoing. There was a price that must be paid. As it turned out, that price was around... 80 or $90. And if I didn't pay the price, though, they were going to keep coming for me, and it would not be nice. But I paid the fine, and you know what happened? Once I did, that's it. The issue's resolved. Payment's been made, and it's the end of the matter. The accusation now 
holds no weight. Friends, jump back into that image. Satan is like that slick lawyer standing before God, accusing me of doing wrong, and he's right. But Jesus dies. And when Jesus died, he actually died my death. It's like he's stepping in as my substitute, paying my price, bearing the penalty for me. And that changes everything. So let me take you to a passage in Colossians 2, if you want to flip there. In Colossians 2, um, uh, starting at verse 13, this is what it says. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by his cross. You see, Jesus' death, friends, is a victory. He cancels the charge of my legal indebtedness. Now I'm forgiven. The price has been paid. I'm forgiven. Jesus is like my defense lawyer. You know, Satan gets up and, and he accuses me. But when he does, Jesus stands up and he says, Oh, actually, the price for that's already been paid. Yeah, yeah that, that, that my death, it, it paid that price. There's nothing more that's needed. He actually, the issue is resolved. We can just move on. Do you see here, Satan's accusations have no power anymore because any moment he stands up to accuse me, Jesus says, actually, the penalty for that has been paid already. The technical word for this, friends, is justification. I'm justified by Jesus' death. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned because Jesus has paid the penalty for me. There it is, justification. So, what does this mean for us then? Friends, I want to say this is something we need to keep remembering. Because it's true, isn't it, that sin is a weighty thing. Brothers and sisters, don't you feel the burden of your own sin in your life? This reminds us not to be in despair. Christmas is here, and each year Christmas comes as a reminder that Jesus came. He came to defeat the devil. And now Satan's accusations hold no power. They have no weight. This is something we must remember, even when we are feeling deeply burdened by our sin. Recall this. Rejoice in this. This is why Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year. But there's more too, because Jesus also frees us from the power of sin. We're not simply kind of justified and then left alone to just get on and do with whatever we want. Jesus actually then, he sends the Holy Spirit to us, to be with us, to live in us. And he, God's Holy Spirit, he changes our desires. Now, maybe not all at once. This is really a lifelong process, but, but the Spirit is changing us from the inside out. This is what the Old Testament prophets spoke about. They said this would happen. So in Ezekiel 36, 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
That's the promise God makes in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament. He does this. He sends his spirit to us. And the Holy Spirit brings about this change in our lives. And there's a passage then in Galatians chapter 5 which talks about this change. It talks about it's like a tree bearing fruit. The Spirit brings about fruit in our lives. And what is that fruit? Well, it's, it's the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Friends, the, 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 the big word for this is, is sanctification, this change in our lives. It's sanctification. Not meaning that your life must be perfect now if you follow Jesus, but, but meaning we are no longer under the power of sin. So you remember, don't you, the, the, the devil's two great tricks, temptation, accusation. The, the accusation one, though, it's powerless. We just saw because we've been justified. The devil's accusations hold no weight. But here we also see that temptation has lost its power too because the Holy Spirit lives in us, which means now we can say no to temptation and we can make choices to honor God. Again, it might be a slow growth to holiness, but be sure, friends, this is happening. It's happening not because you have the power to make it happen in your life. It's happening because the Spirit is making it happen in your life. We're freed from the power of sin. And so you might want to ask, well, what's that mean for us? Well, again, it means we can now say, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, you can say no to temptation now, and you can say yes to honoring God. So look at what Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 tells us to do. It says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what we do. We keep in step with the Spirit. That means... When the Spirit living in you prompts you to say no to sin, friends, won't you listen to him and say no to sin? When the Spirit living in you urges you not to wander into temptation, won't you listen to him? When the Spirit living in you, friends, when he gives you eyes to see how to honor God, won't you listen to him and won't you do it? I had a a wonderful conversation with someone this week talking to me about how the Spirit did this in them. They noticed that they were at their weakest when they felt like they could hold back no more on temptation. They cried out to God. And in that moment, God gave them the the power to resist. Not the power didn't come from them. It clearly came from the Spirit to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Friends, let me remind you, you are no longer under sin's power. So when the devil plays his temptation trick on you, won't you say no? Finally, just briefly, Jesus also frees us from the presence of sin. Right now, we are no longer under sin's power, but we still do sin in our life. We're not perfected yet. But there is a day coming, friends, when Jesus will return. And then he'll take us to be with him in a new creation. And finally... The burden of sin will be no more, for we, we, we will sin no more. And the technical word for this is, is glorified. We'll be glorified, changed, so that sin is no more in us. Finally free from the presence of sin in our lives. And the devil's work against us will be ended forever on that day. Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? 
Because at Christmas we can remember Jesus came. And as he came, he defeated the devil. And so he frees us from sin. He frees us from the penalty of sins. Friends, won't you remember that? Hold it dear. The devil's accusations against you are powerless. Remember that and rejoice in it. Jesus frees us from the power of sin. So friends, live in step with the Spirit. Say no to temptation. Say yes to honoring God. And Jesus one day will free us from the presence of sin completely. So friends, look forward to that day, won't you? Let me pray for us. Our Lord and God, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that he came. But he didn't just come to be a baby, but he, he came to do wonderful things, including defeating the devil. God, our sin is a burden to us. We're so grateful that Jesus has died to bring us forgiveness. Thank you that we are justified in your sight. Thank you that Satan's accusations hold no power against us. Help us remember this always. We pray whatever our circumstances are, we would rejoice in this. Father, thank you that Jesus has uh, robbed the devil not just of his accusation, but of, of the power of his temptation by sending his spirit. Please help us walk in step with the Spirit. And as we do, help us long for and look forward to that day when you'll finally free us from the presence of sin in our lives. Help us rejoice this Christmas because Jesus has come to defeat the devil. We praise you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.